So the Boston Marathon is the world's oldest annual marathon. And like every race, there are some rules that you have to follow. And some of them are interesting, rules that we might not think of, like you cannot listen to portable music while you run in the Boston Marathon if you want to be eligible for prize money. Or if you're running in that marathon, you cannot push a baby stroller while you run. Or you can't wear a costume when you're running in the Boston Marathon for whatever reason. So those are some interesting ones. And then there's those normal rules that we'd expect. Like every runner has to wear their assigned number. They can't give it to somebody else or trade or cover it up. Uh, to qualify for the marathon, you have to meet certain standards at a previous race in order to even enter the Boston Marathon. Then you, know, you got to run the whole race on the designated path. Pretty simple rules, right? Well, some of these rules were the same back in 1980 when a lady named Rosie Ruiz ran the Boston Marathon. Now, you might never have heard of her name, Rosie Ruiz, and that's okay. No one there that day had heard her name either until she won the woman's title at the end of the race. Well, suddenly this person nobody had heard of won the whole thing. She beat all the other ladies. I mean, that was, that was a really neat story. She shot into stardom. There, there she was. She had a medal and a silver bowl. A wreath was put on her head. It was incredible. It was almost too incredible. Because despite running 26 miles on a sunny day, she hadn't broken a sweat. You know, her hair looked pretty good for somebody who had been running for two and a half hours. It's funny, they, they didn't see her leading any of the women runners at the checkpoints that day throughout the race. And then some of the runners started to think about it, and nobody remembered seeing Rosie Ruiz during any of the marathon. So it was just a few days later that it was discovered that Rosie Ruiz, she jumped into the race for the final mile. She didn't run 26 miles, she ran one mile. And this actually wasn't the first time that she had done this. They did a little more investigating. They found that the marathon she ran in New York that allowed her to qualify for the Boston Marathon, she rode the subway to the end of that race. <laughs> but let's be honest, Rosie Ruiz, she followed some of the rules. She, uh, she wore her assigned number. And she ran, she just ran a little bit, she ran the whole thing. But she broke some pretty big rules. And partially following the rules did not make her a champion. Despite the fact that even with all that evidence, she refused to admit that she had cheated. But I know it doesn't surprise any of us that in this sin-filled world, there will always be people who try to break some rules to get ahead or to get what they want. The problem, church, is that some of us as Christians do the same thing with God's commands. Uh, we'll obey Him a little bit, but when His commands are keeping us from what we really want, well, that's when we decide to pick and choose which commands we'll follow. And we become so used to that partial obedience in our lives that we actually start to think we're running the race of this life well, without realizing that by failing to run it the way God has marked out for us, we're going to miss out on his blessings, his purpose for our lives. We'll fail to be a good testimony to those who do not know him. And as we saw last week, our failure to obey God will bring consequences. There will be consequences for sin. That's what we saw last week in Joshua chapter 7. This morning we are turning together to Joshua chapter 8. 
I'd encourage you to turn there if you have a Bible. Joshua chapter 8, we're going to see some of the ways that we can avoid living life of partial obedience so that instead we can live a life of obedience to God. So if you have a Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you as always, use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 174. That's where we'll be, page 174. We are leaving the story of disobedient Achan behind us, as we looked at last time, and now we're going to look at a, a brighter spot with Joshua and Israel. Chapter 8, verse 1, it begins this way. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I've delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men, sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You're just set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us, as they did before, we'll flee from them. And they'll pursue us until we've lured them away from the city. For they'll say, well, they're running away from us, as they did before. So when we flee from them, you're to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it in your hand. When you've taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. All right, let's just pause right here, and then we will come back to verse 10 in just a moment. So God says to Joshua, I want you to go back to Ai, to the place where you had just been defeated. That'd be hard, wouldn't it, to go back right to where you had been defeated? But God says to him, hey, but don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Because I've already given them into your hands. I love how much God communicates in such a short space of time. See, God gave Joshua a command to go and attack Ai. He gave him a plan. You're supposed to set up an ambush. Joshua needed to do this God's way. And God gave him a promise. I'll be with you and give you victory. And notice how quickly Joshua responded to God's commands. He didn't sit around and think about it for a while. He didn't weigh out the pros and cons of obeying God. No, he got up, he got the arm, and he went. There was no hesitation. God told him to do something. Joshua's going to go do it. Believers, does that immediate obedience to God define our lives? Is that what it looks like for us? You see, believers, part of living a life of obedience is obeying God right away. That means when God commands us to do something, we should follow through as soon as possible. I can think of many times God commanded me to do something and I did not do it right away. Now, there were those times where he commanded me to share the gospel, and I didn't do it. 
We are supposed to follow through as soon as possible, believers, when God commands us. By the way, notice that just as sin spreads, we saw that last week, uh, obedience can spread as well. Last week we saw Achan's sin spread to his family. They became complicit in it. Oftentimes our obedience to God spreads as well. It emboldens other believers to live obediently. See, not only did Joshua personally obey God, but he led the soldiers to do the same thing. He said, do what the Lord has commanded. He wanted them to listen to God just like he was doing. But we cannot rightly say to others, do what God has commanded, unless that's what we're doing, Christians. We, we can't encourage other people to be obedient if we're not being obedient. So let's set that example for others of immediate obedience to God. Let's obey God right away, knowing that that's going to impact others. It's part of our testimony to those who do not know God. It's part of our encouragement to our fellow believers. And when that obedience seems hard, when God commands you to do something that seems difficult, remember what God has said to you in the Bible. These believers, God has said to you in Hebrews chapter 13 that he'll never leave you. Never forsake you, he'll be with you. Remember that God has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Ephesians chapter 6, that he'll strengthen you with what you're going through. Remember what God has said in Proverbs chapter 3, that he'll be there to guide you when you're following him. So, believers, let's not hesitate in obeying God's commands. Joshua didn't. So, let's see what happened next, verse 10. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army. He and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the soldiers took up their positions, main camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. And that night, Joshua went into the valley. Now, when the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he didn't know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them. They fled toward the wilderness. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua, and they were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that's in your hand. For into your hand I will deliver the city. Well, Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city, captured it, quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back, saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites who had been fleeing toward the wilderness turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had taken the city, that the smoke was going up from it, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. Those in the ambush came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, when every one of them had been put to the sword, 
All the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. Joshua did not draw back the hand that he held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. All right, let's stop right there. Now, unlike the last time they attacked Ai, Joshua and Israel had victory. And I want us to understand something. They had victory, but it was not because of the number of soldiers that Israel brought to the battle. In fact, as you read through Scripture, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that God made it clear time and time again to the Israelites that no matter the size of their army, without God, they could defeat no one. But with God, they could be defeated by no one. They had victory here because they did this God's way. This was God's plan, and they obeyed completely. God was the one who told Joshua when to give the signal for the ambush. This was all about Israel completely obeying God's commands to them on that day. Now, unlike Joshua and Israel, I think it's safe to say that God is not calling anyone here to go and conquer a town. His commands to them on that day, probably not the same as his commands to me and you on this day. But the thing that we have to ask ourselves, believers, is what is God calling each of us to do today? right now? What has God been leading you to do in your life? Because, see, we need to understand that to live a life of obedience, we need to obey God in our present situation. That's what Joshua and the Israelites were doing. And believers, there will be times in our lives when God calls and commands us to something specific. Are we going to be obedient? When God tells us that we need to let go of those destructive relationships and influences in our lives, that we need to get rid of that sinful habit or addiction, do we obey? When God says that we need to share the gospel with that individual, do we ignore him? Because as I said earlier, I know I've done that. Is that how we respond when God commands us to do that? When God says that we need to serve him in his church in a specific area, Do we make excuses? When God calls us to do something for him in this life, we need to get down to work and follow him. It might be a simple thing. It might be a big thing. But if God has commanded it, it's an important thing. And we need to obey him. We need to obey God immediately, and we need to obey him in our situation, just like Joshua and Israel needed to. So I'm curious, believer, what's God been calling you to do in your life? Let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 29. It says, He, that's Joshua, he impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole, left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Let's stop right here for just a minute. I wanted to read this verse all by itself because I know it's a little strange. So I think we should talk about it for just a minute. First, listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 21 says. This was written before Joshua did any of these things. Deuteronomy 21 says this. 
says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is a curse of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. All right, so what was Joshua doing? I just want us to understand a little bit. The king of Ai had lived in rebellion against God, chose to continue to rebel against God. Because of that, he faced God's judgment for it. The king of Ai, he was killed. He died. Then Joshua took the king and impaled him. Now, it's quite shocking to us to read that. And the point was that this served as a shocking and striking symbol to the people in the land of what the consequence for continued rebellion against God was. Something that we need to remember, we've talked about this a lot since we started studying Joshua, so we're not going to recap all of it today. If you haven't been with us through our study, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the first topics we talked about. We need to remember that the people in the land had a lot of time to repent and turn to God. They had a lot of time to flee the coming battles. They could even choose to enter Israel by faith, like Rahab. But this, this right here, what Joshua was doing, served as just another of the many clear warnings that God had given to the people in the land of what the consequence was for continued disbelief and sin and a lack of repentance. And that consequence was death. It seems quite shocking and severe. That's true. But how much more severe is it for a sinner to face the judgment of a just and holy God because they've chosen to rebel against him? Now, this was a warning to the people of the land. That's why he did it, but I also want us to take note that Joshua followed the words of God that I read earlier in Deuteronomy. He followed the words of God, and he took the body down as God had commanded in the past. I want you to remember that as we read the next few verses. Let's look at verse 30. So then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, God of Israel as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what's written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones in which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native foreign were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There is not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. This is a brief side note. Don't lose sight of the fact that more than once we were told that there were foreigners who lived among them, because remember, do not forget this as we continue moving through Joshua. There is always the opportunity for those outside of Israel to join Israel by faith in the one true God. And there were people there who had done that, people like Rahab. Something we need to keep in mind. But it says 
that Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Mount Ebal was miles away from where they were when they defeated Ai. That means that they, they traveled miles through the land. In the midst of war, with all these hostile nations around them, they traveled for miles to have a worship service to God and to read out blessings and curses from Scripture. Would you have done that in the midst of war? Why is this what Joshua chose to do? Why, why take all the risk and the time and the effort for all these things? Well, you may have noticed, actually, as we read it, how many times it said, according to what's written in the book of the law, according to what Moses had commanded, according to what the book of the law said. The reason they did this is the same reason that Joshua took down the body of the king of Ai before sunset. They did all these things because God commanded these things in Scripture. Back in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, God commanded the nation of Israel through Moses that when they came into the promised land, they needed to go to Mount Ebal. And that there they needed to worship God. And that as they worshipped him, six tribes would stand on Mount Ebal, six tribes would stand on Mount Gerizim, and they would read the curses for disobedience to God's law. They would read the blessings for obedience to God's law. So this was a time of worship and commitment to God, but they did all these things, I want us to understand this, did all these things, because God commanded them to do these things. He commanded them in his word. These were commands from the past that they needed to remember. See, believers, another part of living a life of obedience to God is to obey his commands in Scripture, in the Bible. Obey his commands in the Bible. But how can we do that if we don't know his commands in Scripture? I mean, if Joshua and the Israelites didn't know what God had commanded in the book of Deuteronomy, they probably wouldn't have done this. They probably wouldn't have thought to travel miles through enemy land. But they knew what God had said in Scripture. But how can we obey God's words in Scripture if we don't know the Scripture? In other words, believers, we can't live a life of obedience to God if we don't know the things God has commanded us in His Word. And remember, knowledge alone isn't enough. It's not enough to just read the Bible or just hear it. No, we need to apply it to our lives. We need to follow that knowledge with obedience. Yeah, but sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we do a good job with the reading or listening to the Bible. But it's the application of the Bible that we struggle with. That's what we need to follow through on. Joshua and the Israelites, they did that. It's part of living a life of obedience. Think of it this way. Charles Swindoll, a very well-known pastor, once gave the following illustration. He said, imagine that you're a part of a company and the president of that company has to go away on an extended trip for various reasons. It's going to be gone for a very long time. Well, the president calls together all the employees and the managers and he says, look, I'm going to be gone for a while. So while I am, you all need to take care of the business. You need to manage it for me. And to do this, I'm going to write you while I'm away. I'm going to write you letters and give you instructions, tell you what I'd like you to do, and I just need you to take care of things. And everybody says, okay. They say, we agree. You got it, boss. Well, the president goes and he's gone for several years. During that time, he does. He writes letters to the company, communicates his desires, the things that he wants him to do, and sends the letters off. But after a few years, he returns. He comes back and when he finally arrives, he quickly notices things have gone downhill, even before he gets in the building. There are weeds coming up like crazy where flowers should be. There are broken windows across the front of the building. He walks in. The receptionist is sleeping at the desk. 
There's loud music coming from the offices. He finds out that instead of being prosperous, the business suffered, suffered a big loss. So he brings all the employees and the managers together, and he says, what happened? Didn't you get any of my letters? And they said, yeah. Yeah, sure, we got all your letters. In fact, we put them in a book. And you know what? There are some employees here, they even memorized your letters. They did a good job memorizing your letters. In fact, boss, we, uh, we get together every Sunday, and we have a letter study. We read your letters, and we talk about them. Those are some really nice letters. Well, the president would probably say, yeah, but what did you do about the things that I wrote to you? What did you do about my instruction? They said those employees would look at him and say, do? We didn't do anything, but we read every one of them. And surely you see the point. Believers, we do need to know God's word. We should read it. We should pour over it. We should study it. But then we need to apply it. That's when we'll be found obeying God's commands, the commands that he's given us in the past in his word, just as we need to obey the commands he gives us right now in our present situations. And when we don't apply his word, our lives, our testimony, become a mess, just like that business. Believers, we have been called to live a life of obedience. Now, does this mean that we're going to be perfect in this life, Christians? No. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 that as Christians, if we claim to be perfect, we're a bunch of liars. No, we, we fall, we fail, we make mistakes, we still sin. But unlike Rosie Ruiz, unlike Aiken, whose story we saw last week, believers, when we sin, we need to own up to those sins. And we need to run to God for forgiveness. And then when we've confessed our sin to him, we begin living obediently for him again. Remember this truth, church. Living a life of obedience means that we don't pick and choose which commands to follow. God commands, we follow. And when we live this way, we'll be heartbroken when we do sin. We'll quickly return to him. When we live this way, we fulfill God's will for our lives. We set a good example for others. We point the lost to Jesus Christ. And we run the race of life well. So believers, as we prepare to close, some things I think we all need to evaluate in our lives would be, are there any commands from God in the Bible that we've been ignoring? Do we know we've chosen not to follow? Because if so, some of us may need to go to Lord in repentance during our time of invitation, spend some time in prayer. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, what is it that God has been calling me to do right now for him that I have been ignoring, making excuses? Maybe some of us need to go to the Lord and ask him for boldness to follow him. Ask him to help us trust him more. But if you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, I want you to understand why it is that as Christians we live our lives for Jesus. I want you to understand that we, we desire to live our lives for Jesus, to obey him out of a love for him. That's why we want to obey him, because we love him. But before you leave, if Jesus isn't your savior, I just want you to know how much Jesus loves you. You see, the Bible says that all of us have sin, like Achan, like Rosie Ruiz, like the king of Ai, all of us. We've all sinned. We've all broken God's commands. 
And that's a problem because our sin is separating us from God. God is just and holy. There's no sin in him. And sin must be punished. And the Bible says that if we do not take care of sin, at the end of this life when we stand before God, we're going to be separated forever from him in a place called hell. That's the just punishment. Now, you see, the problem gets worse because we can't take care of our own sin. There's nothing we can do. No amount of good works are going to get us to God. There's no cosmic scale, and we're trying to outweigh the bad with the good. That's not how it works. We are hopeless, left to ourselves. We'll never make it to God. So God came to us. Many, many years ago, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus came and did the thing you and I can't do. Jesus lived the perfect life. And at the end of that life, Jesus took our place. He was our substitute when He died on the cross because He was taking all of the punishment our sins deserved. He took the penalty for us. After He died, Jesus was buried, and three days later, He powerfully rose from the dead, proving that He is who He said He is. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. The only one who can rescue us from sin. And the Bible says that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, if Jesus is not your Savior, understand that your sin is separating you from God. And understand that nothing you can do can get you closer to Him. But Jesus came and died for me and you, everyone in this room, so that we could receive the forgiveness of our sins. So we could be pardoned from the penalty of hell, be brought into a relationship with God. The question for you is, are you willing to give your life to Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's you, if you know that Jesus isn't your Savior, you're willing to admit that, yeah, you've sinned, done bad things, and you're starting to realize that you are separated from God. But if you're ready to change that, please understand the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ, go to Him in prayer right now. Admit to Him that you're a sinner. You know you've broken His commands. But that you know... Believe Jesus did not stay in the grave, but rose from the dead. And give him your life. He'll forgive you of all your sins. Save your soul and bring you into a relationship with him. Friend, if you do that today, I hope you'll share that with someone before you leave. Or if you have questions, I hope you'll come find me and talk to me during this final song we're going to sing. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who still hasn't made that decision, hasn't given their life to Jesus Christ, or just isn't sure where they stand with you, I pray they'd be willing to come and talk to me during the invitation or after the service. But Father, for those of us who have made that decision, who have given our lives to Jesus, I pray that we would desire to obey you out of a love for you. That we wouldn't ignore your commands in Scripture. That we wouldn't make excuses when you call us to do something. It is so tempting to do these things. Now instead, when we fall and fail, help us to run to you for forgiveness and get up and start living for you again. Help us not to pick and choose which commands we'll follow, but instead, when you command, help us be a people who will follow, no matter what. I pray that in all these things you be glorified here and in our lives. Father, we love you. But you proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.